Good to see everyone this morning, and uh, I'm kind of to one side, but I can get to you guys over there, so don't worry. <laughs> but uh, all right, good to be here this morning. We're going to continue this morning in the series that Lyle has been been working on for the last few weeks, called "Close Encounters of the Jesus Kind." Now you're going to notice we're not using the screens this morning. We're a little old school today, okay? So. I was raised in a church where air conditioning was big windows and funeral home fans. How many know what a funeral home fan is? Okay, we got. And the restrooms are about 50 yards down on the edge of the cornfield. And if you got saved in the winter, you couldn't get baptized in the spring because the creek was too cold. So we can make it this morning without screens, I think. Actually, going to have to use the Bible a little bit. But anyway, we're going to be in John 9, 141 this morning, 1 through 41, looking at this passage. About dealing with a dealing with a man that was blind from birth, dealing with actually two miracles: the miracle of physical sight, and also the miracle of of, uh, of spiritual sight. As as we see Jesus encountering this young man, and in, in, in his in, in his uh, affirmities and afflictions, and and, and and dealing with that issue. And so if we, as we look at this this morning, we know that Jesus performed a number of miracles in the New Testament. I mean. I think the last few verses in John says if they were written, all written down, the, the world wouldn't hold the books. And so there's no telling how many people Jesus healed or how many miracles he performed during his time. But usually the ones in Scripture are there for a reason. They were there for a teaching mode. They were there for a purpose to prove a point in his life. And uh, and just uh, and we know that he had compassion on people. And I was just looking through a couple of verses over in Matthew uh, 9 and verse, uh, verse 36, it says this. It said, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were help- harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then over in Mark 2, 1 and 8, again, we find, find him talking about compassion. He said, During those days another crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for those people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. So obviously his miracles always were from a point from compassion for the people. But that was only the secondary reason he performed miracles. Now I'm sure a lot of the miracles he performed were just because people needed them. But, but there were the primary reasons that he was doing miracles that had a bigger purpose to it. It's kind of a, a four-point thing here. One was to fulfill his messianic prophecy. In other words, the Old Testament, it spoke about one coming, a Messiah coming, uh, someone coming who take away the sins of the world. Matthew 8, 17 says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So it was to authenticate the prophecy or, or to fulfill the prophecy that we had in the Old Testament. It was also to authenticate his messianic ministry. John 20 and 30 and 31, this is a great passage. It said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But those are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that was his ministry, to come and bring eternal life to the world, to the people of the world. So it helps authenticate his ministry. Thirdly was to glorify God. When Jesus, and we see that in the passage today that we're looking at. He said, but when Jesus heard about it, and this is dealing with Lazarus, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. And then last but not least is dealing with his deity. And, uh, and establishing or demonstrating his deity 
that, that he is who he said he is, that he is from God, that he is divine. And this is the passage where they he, he had the, the paraplegic that they lowered down and had him healed. And Jesus finally said to him, he said, which is easier? Just tell a man his sins are forgiven or heal him. And then he told the man to get up and walk, and he got up and walked, and, and all praise God. So that was the more basis of why he was doing miracles, is, is sure the people were healed and the people received, and he loved people and he had compassion, but he was establishing those things in his ministry as he went along. And even as he sent the apostles out with power, it was to authenticate who they were, that they were from him. And so today when we look at this passage in 9, 1 through 41, we're dealing with a miracle, but we're dealing with a, a, a confrontation with the Pharisees and the healing and their laws and rules and, and several different things going on here that Jesus is trying to teach a point and teach a lesson here when we look at this. And we're going we're to uh, cover the whole story, but I'm going to just take the, the, the verses kind of in, in paragraph form and we're just going to point out some high points. And there's about three or four things at the end that I think this really speaks to us. But there's a relevancy in this, in this story that, that still comes right over to the church today when we look at it. There's things from here that we can learn from, and I think there's things that's going on here today that, that, still, that still hamper the church as we look at it. So starting in verse, uh, verse 9 of, of John, As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, when we look at this passage, we've got a man born blind from birth. All right, his, his status in the world is pretty much set. About the only thing he can do is be a beggar. He has no way to have occupation. He has no hope of marriage and a family and of owning anything. There's no, he's, he's a social outcast. Probably a religious outcast because they, as you see here, they, the Jews put sin as, a, as an issue with afflictions like this. And so he's, he's confined to begging the rest of his life. And many times the parents didn't even take care of him. And so this man, his life is pretty set, but he, it's about, he's about to change eternally. I mean, he is about to, uh, about to have, a, have a, an event in his life that's going to change him forever. And that's kind of the series we've been looking at. And then as he looks down the next thing here, so we, we have this man, he's just sitting out here begging, doing his daily routine, and it doesn't say that he was looking for Jesus or even knew about Jesus. And then the question they ask, they ask, who sinned, this man or his parents? This, this, this man or his parents sinned. And so the, the Jewish concept was that if you had an affliction like that, there was sin involved in it. Somebody sinned. Somebody did something wrong. Well, and, and, and both of these... Assumptions are wrong by the Pharisee. I mean, by the by the uh, people with him. If you if you look at the passage, because we don't pay for another man's sin. So if his parents sinned, it didn't come down on him. Because in Deuteronomy, we find in twenty four sixteen, we find this. He said, "Fathers shall not be put to death for the children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So I don't pay for your sin. You don't pay for mine." So to say that his parents sinned and caused this blindness is a false assumption. And then the other thing they said, well, did he sin? Well, he's been born blind from birth. How did he sin in the womb? So in this process, the, the, the disciples are saying they're looking for what happened, and Jesus is looking, what can we do with it? That's what Jesus is approaching. He's not, he's not concerned with the past, but he's approaching you know, and asking, what can, what can we do with it? And, uh, and, and how can we make something out of this? 
And so the man's blindness then is basically because we live in a fallen world. And to assume that, I mean, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that when sin came in, evil came in, death came in, sickness came in. And we see all these things going around us every day. And he was simply blind because that was just, just a, a part of what happened in his life. And so Jesus encounters him, but he has chosen to use him in a great way. He's chosen to bring a miracle into his life, but he's chosen to do that to demonstrate something in his power to the people around him. And so it's, it, he's, he's just in that situation, not because of anything anybody did, but it's just, just by, by uh, the fact that he was born blind. And, he, he, and this is the only life he's had up until this point when we look at it. All right, then in verses 6 through 7, and Jesus talks about it, he said, here's one thing he said here. He said, we missed this, but he said, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, that's a controversial verse because some people will say, hey, God made this boy blind at birth so he could use him later. And others said, no, that's not, that's another commentator say that's not right because of, uh, you know, that God wouldn't do that. It's against his nature to do that. But what you see in this passage is that Jesus didn't take on that argument. He was simply dealing with the event at the time. Regardless of why he was blind, Jesus is about to fix that. And so you don't see Jesus going into that process. I myself lean towards the fact that he didn't make him blind from birth so he could use him later. But he just chose a man who was blind. And so and in verse 6 he said, Having said this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with saliva and put it on the man's eyes. And go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Salaam which that word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So Jesus didn't present the gospel to him. There wasn't anything going on. Jesus just put some mud on his eyes and said, go wash that off. And, it, and, and he went and did it like he was told, and he, he got his sight. And, and just a very simple act. I mean, there wasn't a lot of buildup around it. Jesus just simply said, go wash your face. And his neighbors and those who had forgiven him, begging him, asked, said, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And many said it was. Excuse me, some said it wasn't. And so others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then when your eyes open? And he went ahead and told them again that they put mud on his eyes. And, and I went and washed and I could see. And they asked, where is this man? And he said, I don't know. So you, so you have all of this stuff going on. We got a guy that's been blind from birth. A lot of people know him. All at once he can see. All at once we have all of this hubbub going on in the community well here comes the pharisees now they're about to get involved in it now because and we know jesus was in a constant struggle with the pharisees for obvious reasons but they got involved and partly because he was challenging their position they were afraid of him and uh, and but the main thing they had here with him let's look at this in verse 13 they brought to the pharisees the man who had been blind now the day on which jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the sabbath Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were greatly divided. And finally they turned again to the blind man and said, What have you to say about him? He, it was he who opened your eyes. All right, now the Pharisees' biggest issue with here is they're saying Jesus broke the Sabbath. So their thought process was any man that breaks the Sabbath can't be from God. 
But then you either got the other group over here that says, yeah, but we've got a man that can see now, and only somebody from God can do that. Now, here's the, really the key to this passage. Jesus didn't break any biblical Sabbaths. So what Sabbath did he break? He broke the man-made Pharisees' Sabbath. He broke one where they had added 600-and-something laws and numerous rules and definitions. For example, you weren't supposed to heal, or, heal or, or practice medicine on Sunday unless somebody was about to die. But then they had to put in all these stipulations and how do you determine whether somebody was about to die or not. And so it was, it was just impossible. But So they're challenging him on the Sabbath. Now, and here's the odd thing about it. We're talking about spiritual blindness and spiritual darkness and hard-heartedness. Now, the man can see he has physical sight, but he's still spiritually blind because Jesus hadn't really confronted him yet with the gospel. He just healed him. <laughs> but one of the problems the Pharisees had, you know, they, they were tied in. They were tied into their legalistic structure, their man-made faith, and they couldn't let go of that. And, uh, and so they were challenging him on this position on the Sabbath, and so we have a division among the people there. And, and, the, and the, the man that's healed is caught in the middle of this. So he's got them on both sides of the fence trying to figure out what to do. And, and the thing we have to ask ourselves, did Jesus know that the Pharisees were going to take on this attitude about it? Well, sure he did. He was in a constant struggle with them. And the main thing he was so aggravated about, they had taken the Sabbath, which was a beautiful day that he had created for man to relax, to worship, to enjoy the, the blessings of his life, to praise God. And they had made it so wearisome trying to keep all the rules that man couldn't do it. And then they accused him of breaking the Sabbath. And just look back over in, in Matthew chapter 23. This is a passage on the seven woes, and I'm not going to read all of it. But a couple of things I want to point out here is the reason Jesus had so much trouble with these guys. He said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide, their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have them call rabbi, call them rabbi, pride. Then also in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So Jesus is constantly in conflict with them. He's saying, you've got so many laws, you're missing the most important part, which is to love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And yet the Pharisees had created this legalistic position, this legalistic uh, domain that they lived in, and and they didn't want that threatened, and they weren't, you know, and they were they all they were blind to the point they were not going to allow that to be uh, to be attacked. And so, but Jesus is trying to point that out to them now. And one thing, I don't think they wanted to know. They didn't like the challenge. They really didn't want to know. I, I had a fellow in my Sunday school class one time. He said, "There's things I don't talk to God about because I don't want to hear the answer." And you know, that happens. I mean, sometimes. So they didn't want to see. And it's, and it's, but it's kind of sad that they're sitting here. If anybody knows the scripture, these men do. And they're sitting here, and yet they, they have a miracle that's performed in front of them. And they know that only somebody from God can perform miracles. They had to know. And yet, and yet they, they couldn't, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't believe that. Because they were stuck 
in this man-made system that they'd created that suited them. And I'm going to tell you, the church today can be just as guilty in many ways. When, when, we, when we gather up our opinions and our likes and our dislikes and our practices and our denominations, now the essentials of Christ, that's non-negotiable. But when we sit around and argue over one point or the other about when the rapture is going to happen or what, anything you want to name, we're not really doing what God's called us to do. And we can, we can get just as bought in to a hardness of any kind and, and, and miss the message that God's trying to say in our lives. And I think we have to be fresh each day but just because just because God moved in our life a certain way yesterday doesn't mean he's not going to change that tomorrow. I mean, I can't take that as a president and say, this is what I'm going to do my whole life because God may change that. And so we have to, we're not much different than them if we're not careful. Traditions is another thing we can get involved. And, and you know, and, and I don't, I'm not one of these people who says change for the sake of changing. But sometimes God says, we're going to change. We're going to go in a different direction. We're going to do something different. And, you know, and we wonder and we wonder why the church is declining and we're losing foothold, in the, you know, in our, in our faith every day and losing the church and, and generations are sliding away from the church. Maybe, maybe we're a little too locked in. You've got to do it this way or this way or this way or that way instead of sharing the gospel with people, instead of caring about what's going on in people's lives and looking for a way to do that. And uh, there was a, we had an African-American minister at the convention we just went to, and we were, he was giving a little devotion, introducing a topic, and kind of was referencing to the passage in Matthew about being salt and light. And he was talking about, you know, the, the importance of that and the importance of Christians today coming back up and fulfilling the purpose that God had given us. And he said, if I was in my home church, we might say it like this. Y'all need to turn on the lights and start passing the salt. And that's, that was, he said, now, that's why I would do it if I was at home. And, uh, and somebody in the back hollered, yes, brother. And he said, don't do that. We'll be here an hour and a half. And <laughs> but it was just encouraging to see his enthusiasm in talking about, and the convention this year, by the way, was very, very upbeat about reaching people, about getting back outside the church walls and quit worrying about keeping our little thing like it is and reaching people whatever we need to do. If we need to kick the walls out, let's kick them out and go with it. And so we have to be careful about that. And I think that's relevant when we look at that. So we have these Pharisees who are spiritually blind and hard-hearted. When we talk, you know, Jesus constantly talked about light and darkness. And so even though these are knowledgeable men, in, in essence, they're living in darkness. And so when they talked to the man, and some, and, and, and some said, but others asked, how can a sinner do miraculous signs? And when they asked him, he said, what do you have to say about him? He was the one that opened your eyes. Man replied, well, I think he's a prophet. What I love about this guy, he got his eyesight back, and he wasn't worried about no, what nobody thought. He knew this man healed him. He didn't have it figured out. He didn't know who he was for sure. He didn't know what all was going on. But he never failed to say, that man Jesus healed me. That man Jesus took care of me. And the Jews still did not believe that he'd been born blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. So now they get his parents involved in it. You see, it's getting bigger and bigger. And they said for them, is this your son, they asked, and is he the one that was born blind, and how is it he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see now or how he opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. So what's going on here? They're not trying to discover who Jesus is. They've already decided if you, if you lift up Jesus' name, you're out of here. 
Now, the parents had a chance to witness here. The parents had a chance to stand up for Jesus here, but they didn't. And they knew he did it, and they, and they didn't do it. And again, it's, it, I think it's that same message to us. You know, are we going to stand up for Christ? Are we going to, in this world today that needs it or not? And so his parents said, ask him. So a second time, they summoned in the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Now, basically what they were saying in that passage there is the fact that uh, God should get the glory for your blindness being healed. Not this man. Go ahead and go ahead and give God glory and admit that this man is a sinner. So they were trying to get him to buy off on it and say, well, he really didn't give me my sight because he didn't know, but he wouldn't do it. And so that's, but that's what they wanted him to do. And he said, one th- and, then, and they asked him, he said, we know this man is a sinner. And he replied, I love his answer. And he said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But I do know one thing. I was blind this morning and I'm not now. And that is a testimony that is that is how we have to be about this. He didn't have this figured out. He didn't know who Jesus was. He hadn't. He didn't have spiritual light yet. In essence, he wasn't saved yet. But he didn't have any problem with saying that man healed me. And you can imagine the circumstances he come out of was a lot more important to him than a lot of other people. The rest of those folks hadn't been blind from birth. When he got healed, he was in a hundred percent. He didn't care what they thought or what they said. He wasn't backing out of that. And that he was going to stand up for Christ in the process. And, and, and his parents knew that Jesus healed him. I mean, they understood that. I mean, and, but they were afraid and, and naturally afraid. But at the same time, you would think they would look at their son and say, this man Jesus healed him. I'm going to be on his side. But, I mean, they kind of even sold their son out. They said, well, you need to talk to him. They figure if he gets kicked out of the synagogue, we won't. But he probably never been in the synagogue anyway because of, of, his, of his issues. So the man is still spiritually blind, and again he gives the Pharisees a lecture down through this when you look at it. They hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, you don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, and I think this is one of the best lines in this whole passage. He said, you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And basically what he said to the Pharisees, you are the teachers of the law. You are the leaders. You are the, you are the gurus. You know the law from front to back. You've studied it all your life. Your task is to help us to understand and know the law. And, and, and you know that only a man from God can heal somebody. And I've been healed. And you tell me you don't know where he comes from. I mean, he just might as well have spit in the Pharisee's face. But, I, I mean, I give him credit for the courage he had. But he asked him that tough question. You mean to tell me you don't know where this man comes from? You've got, you're, got, you're the gurus of the of the faith and you got a man in your midst healing people and you don't know where he came from and it was a challenge to them it really was but and um, and, and he didn't worry about it and he goes on to say he said nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from god he could do nothing and the guy was right he he understood now if he understood you know the pharisees understood he said if he wasn't from god he couldn't have healed me but he did heal me which leaves one option He's from God. So how do you explain the Pharisees in this? They didn't want to hear it. You can't tell me. Now, this is the early part of Jesus' ministry, John is. But you think about the end of his ministry, as much as they had seen and heard from Jesus, how they sat there and still denied that he was the Messiah. How do you do that? You do it because you've gotten so hard-hearted and so set in your ways that you just refuse to change. You just, you're, you're not going to give in. And... Uh, 
and they destroyed themselves. They sealed their faith in, faith in eternity by being that way because they would not heed to the gospel. They would not heed to Christ through this. <clears throat> and then they replied, you were steeped from birth, and how dare you lecture us, and they threw him out. So they went back to what we were talking about a minute ago. They said from birth, you were born blind because there was a sin attached to it, and you lecture us. So what do you see in that? You see the pride. You see the arrogance in it. You don't talk to us like that. We're Pharisees. We're in charge of this thing, and that was the problem, and that's the issue that Jesus had with them all along, trying to cut through the red tape and get them to see that, hey, guys, it's it's bigger than the things you've made up. It's bigger than who you think you are. And so they excommunicated the guy, and he still didn't totally understand what happened, and he's still spiritually in the dark in, in essence, And uh, but he hadn't stopped giving Jesus credit for his sight. I mean, he, he's, still, he's, still, uh, he's still holding on to that. And then in the, in the last couple of verses of this passage is where I think there's some points there that we need to realize and, uh, and kind of pick up on a little bit. And when Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked him, said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that's an interesting point when you look at this. The only cure for spiritual blindness is the saving faith in Jesus Christ, of course. But spiritual sight requires an intervention from Christ. He seeks us. He comes to us. What is it? Luke 19.10 says he comes to seek and to save that which was lost. We don't get saved if Christ doesn't seek us first. I mean, and, uh, you know, Romans says we have that built into us. We've seen the creation, that there is a God, that there is something. In God's love, God's conviction, that light he shines into us, and we have the option of, of pulling towards that or pulling away from it. Every man in the world gets a chance, I believe, with all my heart. God opens himself up to them, whether they choose to, to go towards that light or repel away from that light is up to them. But God seeks us. But he went and found this man. He kicked him out of the synagogue, so Jesus is not through with him, so he went to find him. <clears throat> and he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Poignant question. Same thing we ought to be doing with people. Do you know Jesus? You know, it's, it's a good, uh, a good uh, practice for us here. And, and another thing on that passage we just looked at, the intervention from Jesus, a good example of that in Scripture is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Here was this man, a eunuch, looking for, looking for an answer. He went to, he went to, to, to the, the, the Passover. He's coming back. He's two days in the desert, and God takes Philip out of a massive revival and says, walk two days out in the desert and find this guy. Jesus was seeking him because he knew he wanted to be saved, and he went to him. And so Jesus will always look for us and always seek us out in this when we look at him. Secondly, spiritual sight requires a faith response. The man answered, where is he, sir? I want to believe in him. And once we know who Christ is, whether we hear the gospel, whether, whether uh, somebody shares it with us, where we just reveal to us in a time of need, we have to be willing to respond in faith. In other words, to say, I believe, I accept that. I humble myself. I, that's what the Pharisees couldn't do. They couldn't turn loose of who they were, and they couldn't turn loose of their status and their power to bring themselves to terms with the fact that this is the Messiah because they had built their own little kingdom. We can do the same thing, folks. Don't, don't, don't sell yourself short. It's easy to do. All right, and then thirdly in this passage we look at, and, he said, and Jesus said, you have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Spiritual sight recognizes and acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I think that's the critical point we need, we need to focus on just a minute. For the condition we're in, 
in the condition the faith is in today, it's time for believers to stand up and speak up and say, I love Jesus Christ. He saved my soul. He's the son of God. He'll save your soul. We, we've gotten so quiet about this that God's displeased with us, I think. We need to stand up and, and in, in a loving way, not arrogant, not marching down the street with signs, not having rights, but just in our daily routine, do not be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul said, and look at people and say, I am a follower of Jesus, and he saved me, and my life has never been the same since I met him, which was what was happening here. This man's life was never the same. But it's time that we do that because we have never had a greater need for believers to be salt and light and stand up. And, 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 and here's the thing about it. That's all Jesus ever asked us to do is just stand up and, 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 and give his name to people, just preach his name. He's taking care of everything else. It's just like when the eunuch went out, Jesus, Jesus he's, God set the details up. He put him in the position to find him. He had the unit ready. All Philip had to do was just get out there. God pretty much did all the saving. I mean, he even had the details. And so if there's anything I think that we need to take away from this, it is the challenge to us that, we, that, that people around us need to hear Jesus out of us. And, and, and we're not doing that. I mean, we're just not. They, they talked about that some at the convention, how very few people, 90-some percent of the people surveyed had never shared their faith with one person. Not just in passing conversation. And I'm not talking about going down the street with a big black Bible and beating people over the head and getting them back in the corner. That's not what I'm talking about. But just not being ashamed to say, what are you so happy about? Jesus, I love him. And, you know, and, and be positive about that. And that's some of the things that we need to think about doing. And, and I think Jesus, God is challenging us to do. And then lastly, it says in here, it said, spiritual sight leads to worship. He said, yes, Lord, I believe, which he responded. He put his faith in him, and then he worshiped. And, and that should be a standard practice with us as well. I mean, our, our, our lives every day ought to be worship. And I, and I don't mean in church, and I don't mean singing something, but just the joy of knowing that Christ lives in us and we have a purpose in this life, that we have eternity sealed. Our day ought to be a day of worship in that, that people just see it in us and that we constantly just say, thank you, Lord. You know, just, Lord, thank you. I appreciate that. You've been so good to me. And, and, and that's, that's what Jesus is coming in this passage. He's, the Pharisees, he's going, you don't have any idea. But this man has just got his sight cured. He does. He's tickled to death. He's telling everybody that wants to know. He's saying Jesus did it. And as soon as Jesus asked him and, and shared the gospel with him, he said, I believe. I want in. Now, he knew what was going to happen. He wasn't going to be welcome in the synagogue. He was outcast before, so I guess he figured I'm still outcast. He ain't got anything to lose, you know. But, uh, but you have to love his attitude here and what he's doing. You know, the Pharisees were, were experts in the law, and they refused. And also, they, sealed, they refused to see and left themselves strapped for eternity with separation from God. And it's a shame because they knew the Old Testament Scriptures inside and out. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew that only somebody from God could heal and do the things this man Jesus was doing. So why did they hate him so? It just had to be personal. It had to be just the hardness. It had to be spiritual darkness. They were just so consumed with themselves and what they were doing. I guess they were, God blinded them to the point. Maybe it gets to the point that we're hard in your heart. God just gets to the point where he says, okay, that's what you want. I'll fix you where you can't see. Scripture says that. And the thing that we have to do, I think, in the church today that, that, that I took out of this passage, too, 
is we got to come to terms with the fact that it's not about you and me. It's not about what I want, what I like. It's not about what I think we ought to do or what we did in the past or what we need to do. And, uh, you know, it's about Jesus and his mission. He has a mission and a purpose for each one of us, for this church, for every church, for every denomination. And if we think for one minute that we can do it our way and he's still going to bless it, we're fooling ourselves. Jesus is only interested in what he's designed for our lives and our church and, 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 and where we go. That's all he's interested in. But in that, he will put his blessing and his power in it and, uh, and, 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 and let us be all we've been designed to be. But if we try to change that, and that's what I said a few minutes ago, I think we have to be open each day to, to new revelation from God because we may come in tomorrow and God change the whole way that our ministry goes from yesterday to tomorrow. But he has the right to do that, and he don't owe us an explanation. He don't owe us an explanation about what's going to happen next year. He says, trust me for today, and I'll bless you for today. And so to me, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning, looking at this passage out of this, is where are we at? Where are you at? Where am I at? Is my faith life every day more man-made, more about me, more about my perceptions and my ideas and my thoughts, or is it more about, Jesus, what do you have for me today? And we all have to ask that question for ourselves. We all have to answer that question for ourselves. But uh, I think when we can look around and see what's going on in the world, that we could all do a little bit better in, in the way that we approach being the gospel witness that he's called us to be. You know, that's the last thing he told us to do when we left this world, to just share my gospel with anybody. We don't have to worry about any. We don't have to worry about the results. We don't have to worry about anything else except just going out there and sharing the name of Jesus. And these promises, I'll take care of that. So where are we at? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. I think it's critically important for the church. We've got challenges coming at us from every direction today. We need to know for sure who we are in Christ and what that means in our daily lives, or we'll get trampled in the dust in the process. So think about that. Answer your question for yourself. Where are you at? Where are you going? Are you willing to let Jesus do what he wants to do in your life? And... Uh, and, and to, to be productive and, and to reach out and touch a world like he wants to touch a world through all of us. Let's pray.